So we're in Proverbs. You know, I can't tell you how much fun it is to teach Proverbs because a lot of times when you talk to people, they express their desire to just tell me what to do. You know, I'm a Christian now. I I just want to do what pleases the Lord. Tell me what to do. And you know, a lot of times our heart does really yearn that way, right? And you know, Scripture gives us a lot of of exhortations to, you know, we're saved by grace through faith, but after that it says we're to walk in the good works that God has planned beforehand that we might walk in them, right? But what are they? What are we to do? And Proverbs really comes about this task for those who have been saved through faith in Lord Jesus Christ uh, and have the ability to obey. It comes about the task of informing you how to live um, this life in a very difficult world. It's, it's wisdom that goes beyond knowledge. It's more than a catalog of facts. It's a practical art of living. It's giving you experience and expertise in good decision making. It's helping us to overcome the challenges in our life by applying the knowledge that we've gained from this book, and then being able to share it with others. That's a big part of Proverbs, right? Helping you to um, give truth into the life of another person. Proverbs 2, 6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom, from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. We've been walking through um, this book at a very high level. We're going to cover 35 verses today. So it is kind of an overview, um, but I think sometimes it's helpful to, to read the Bible in that way. I mean, seriously, Proverbs 6, you could easily do 10 lessons from. We're going to do one. Um, but hopefully you'll, you'll get what we're, what we're emphasizing. Today we're going to look at practical protection, pitfall identified to avoid destruction. We're in this, this first um, area where we're going through the contrast between good and evil from chapters one through nine. We did already cover work, and we'll have a little bit of review of that today, um, but we'll cover other various topics in uh, Roman numeral two, and then we'll cover chapters 30 and 31 separately. Our theme for this book has been from Proverbs 1-7, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So there's that contrast, right? Today, our lesson verse is from Proverbs 6.16. There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. A familiar verse that we're going to put into context with the other verses from chapter 6 today. You know, um, as we looked at the title of the lesson It's about uh, the protection, once again, this time practical protection and identifying pitfalls. When I was was studying for this, I ran across this article um, that was titled, uh, Deadly Danger You Can't See. And that's really what's going to be exposed in our lesson today are deadly dangers you cannot see. What this article was uh, about were the deadly dangers that come about after a war that's remaining, specifically mines left in minefields. I thought it was really interesting how uh, the correlation between this, this father that wants to expose hidden dangers to his son of what's going on today across the world in these minefields. You know, there's still uh, contamination. Many countries, although they ban landmines, millions continue to lie and wait for unsuspecting victims. And they're trying to find more and more of them. Um, It said some estimates suggest there's as many as 110 million landmines buried in 60 or so countries contaminated by these deadly devices. 
However, no one really knows for sure how many of these mines, because they date back even before World War II, and their locations have been lost to history. But out of the countries, Afghanistan is a country widely considered to have the greatest number of landmines. However, huge numbers can still be found in countries such as Cambodia, Cambodia, Laos, Bosnia, and Angola. So the landmines continue to be used in hot spots like Miramar, Libya, and Syria. You know, it's said that for countries that can't afford weapons, they use landmines, right? Um, but demining now uh, is, a, is a big effort to clean up these, these minefields. And one guy says, if demining is close to any job, it's probably closest to archaeology because it's calm, slow, repetitive work. They use, uh, a lot of times they're still using these metal detectors. Um, and it says, the one guy says, we use metal detectors to find out where the mine is and then scrapers and prodders to carefully excavate it. Now listen to this. A good deminer may find one mine a week. Wow. Says, despite these challenges, it's possible to clear a country of landmine. It takes a long time. After 22 years of hard work, Mozambique was declared free of landmines in 2015 after 200,000 landmines were removed or destroyed from 17 million square miles of land. So what they're trying to do now is add technology, more and more technology to this effort to clean up these landmines. So now there's a machine like this. This is called an aardvark. It looks like a combination between a tank and a combine harvester. And what it's equipped with is 72 chains that rotate and explode the mines out in front of the driver so that the machine nor the driver is injured or destroyed. So with this machine, you can do four football fields of area in one day. So it's increasing the ability. Of course, you know, drones are used for everything, right? So why not use drones to clean up minefields? That's what these guys are doing. And then low-tech, on the low-tech end, mice have exceptionally, or excuse me, rats, have an exceptional sense of smell. And they've been trained, even here, this one's being used, to uh, smell the TNT that's in the landmines and can locate them. Um, they did add that no rats have died in this endeavor as of yet. <laughs> that's really important. This is a kind of a new contraption. It's called a mine caffron or mine exploder. It's... Um, 175 circular plastic plates attached with bamboo poles. And what, it's, what it does is it's um, powered by the wind. And it's, it's designed to blow across the landscape and detonate the mines as it goes. So again, just thought that was kind of interesting. Lots of efforts made to, uh, to get rid of some of these deadly dangers that you can't see. You know, the hope is that the use of satellite imagery to spot minefields would allow uh, even the most mine countries in the world to be cleaned up in the next 10 years. So there's, there's a lot of, lot of hope in that area. Well, but where we are is working with the, um, the sun in how to avoid hidden dangers that he cannot see. And let's get back to that. This, you know, this, this, uh, this platform up here is wonderful, but it's very sticky. <laughs> so going through your notes is tough. Um, all right. So... Today we're going to look at, as a father identifies, four pitfalls that will help a son avoid 
bondage, poverty, strife, and self-destruction. So, if you're not already in Proverbs chapter 6, let's get there and let's read the first 19 verses. My son, if you have become surety for your neighbor, have given a pledge for a stranger, if you have been snared with the words of your mouth and have been caught with the words of your mouth, do this then, my son, and deliver yourself. Since you have come into the hand of your neighbor, go humble yourself and importune yourself. Give no sleep to your eyes nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hunter's hand and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Or go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways, and be wise, which having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and your poverty will come in like a vagabond. And your need like an armed man. A worthless person, a wicked man, is one who walks with a perverse mouth, who winks with his eyes, who signals with his feet, who points with his fingers, who with perversity in his heart continually devises evil, who spreads strife. Therefore his calamity will come suddenly. Instantly he will be broken and there will be no healing. There are six things which the Lord's hate, yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and heads that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, and a false witness who utter lies and one who spreads strife among brothers. Well, let's, let's work our way through this now because the first pitfall that the father is identifying for the son is careless surety. And the danger is becoming bondage or becoming a slave. So we're looking at bondage escaped and escape bondage by not carelessly becoming surety for your neighbor's debt. Well, what is surety? That's not a, a term we use often unless you're in my business which is commercial real estate, and then you use the term quite often, okay? So surety is to pledge oneself as a guarantor for another's debt. So you get this, there's three parties involved. There is, in this case, the son or the person uh, that um, has a neighbor. The second, that's the second party, the neighbor. And the neighbor is the one that's borrowing money, borrowing money for an unspecified activity, whether it's to purchase real estate or run his business. It doesn't say. But the neighbor is the one that's going to borrow the money. And then the third part, party to this transaction is the lender. Okay? So the neighbor receives a loan from the lender. The lender says to the neighbor, you don't have enough collateral. You don't have enough income. You don't have enough assets. So for me to make the loan, you're going to have to go find someone who does and get them to guarantee the debt. Okay? And that's what the neighbor does in going to the son or to another person. They want them to become the guarantor for the debt. What the father's trying to help the son understand is there's a grave danger in uh, taking that position. And it's throughout Proverbs. Proverbs 11.15 says this, He who is a guarantor for a stranger will surely suffer for it, but he who hates being a guarantor is secure. So what that proverb is saying is, the one who guarantees a debt for his neighbor will suffer for it. Proverbs 17, 18 says, A man lacking in sense pledges and becomes a guarantor in the presence of his neighbor. So lacking in sense is how this person who's going to guarantee the debt is described. 
And then Proverbs twenty two twenty six, do not be among those who pledge, who give pledges among those who become guarantors for debt. If you have nothing which to pay, why should he take your bed from under you? Okay, so let me give you a, a contrast because I said in commercial real estate, I work in this area quite often. Well, there's a difference, okay? In commercial real estate, you have sophisticated borrowers, lenders, and guarantors. These are people that are accustomed to working uh, in this area. Matter of fact, when I started in commercial real estate, if there hadn't been a man that was willing to guarantee the money that I was to borrow as, as the borrower, I would never have been able to pursue that vocation. Uh, but the man who was my guarantor was sophisticated and had the assets to pay the debt if I couldn't. And it was a part of a business transaction. That's not what's happening here, okay? That's not what's happening here because what you see um, going on here is um, he says, have you given a pledge for a stranger? If you have been snared with the words of your mouth, have you been caught with the words of your mouth? What the father's saying is, You've been snared by the words of your mouth. In other words, you've allowed your ego to maybe make, help you make a bad decision. It snared you, or you've allowed your pride or your desire to uh, do something naively for someone that you really don't have any business doing. Um, you've been snared by the words of your mouth. You've, you've taken on an obligation that you aren't aware of the consequences of. You've guaranteed a debt that you don't have the means to pay yourself. Do you, understand? Do you see the difference here? This is a person that shouldn't be doing this because they are not in a position to be able to pay the debt that the neighbor is taking on. Therefore, the, uh, the father's saying, look, escape bondage by not carelessly becoming surety for your neighbor's debt. This son is doing this carelessly, not thoughtfully, that snared means trapped by, by your own mouth, trapped by, you know, caught, self-inflicted. Um, it says, escape bondage by not doing that. Verse 3 says, in my son, deliver yourself. There's a sense of urgency. Withdraw immediately since you've come into the hand of your neighbor. Get out of this trap. In other words, he's telling the son, Go to the neighbor. Don't, he's not talking about going to the lender now. He's saying go to the neighbor who used debt you've guaranteed and get a release, which you can get, a release from your guarantee. Do this immediately. Go humble yourself, it says. Weary yourself. Use energy to persuade your neighbor to give you a release. So if you've already guaranteed your neighbor's debt, urgently seek to be released from that guarantee. Verse 4 says, give no sleep to your eyes nor slumber to your, to your eyelids. He's talking about keeping an intensity on this to get out of this position. He says, don't wait for the disastrous to impact. Extricate yourself now. Deliver yourself, it says, like the gazelle. You know, one of the commentators says about the neighbor, one who does not feel grateful to the surety or the guarantor will abandon his rescuer. What, what, what they're saying there is, you know, at the time you thought it was a good idea to help your friend, but your friend gets into a position where they can't pay the debt and they don't care about you anymore. And you're left holding the bag. Um, because the one who initially was very appreciative now doesn't feel grateful toward you. So don't wait for the disaster impact to occur. The father's saying, look, if you've already done this, get out of it any way you can. Do it fast. Do it swiftly. And again, you know, the imagery he brings is going to be like a gazelle, right? Do it fast. Extricate yourself. So, pitfall one is, to avoid losing your freedom, don't guarantee the debt of a deadbeat neighbor. Uh, 
Okay? The next one, the next pitfall he's going to talk about is laziness. And the danger is poverty. So look at verse 6. Now, again, this is kind of a review of the work um, topic that we went over. You'll recognize this because it says, uh, go to the ant, right? We're going to use the ant this time as an example. And prevent poverty by being a diligent worker. And as you see, ants, ants are very diligent workers. They're able to uh, do things far beyond you know, the strength that we would have. These ants are moving something larger than they are. But it says, look at the ant. Um, Observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief officer or ruler, in verse 7, you know, the ant is self-motivating, takes initiative without waiting for direction. Verse 8, it says, she prepares her food in the summer, so makes provision in advance for needs that will come up in the future. And then gathers her provision in the harvest. So the work of the ant is to have an excess saved so that when uh, the winter comes and there is no food, they've stored up food. So prevent poverty by being a diligent worker and prevent poverty by preparing for future needs. And then there's a contrast to prevent poverty by not being a sluggard who sleeps instead of works. Verse 9 says, how long will you lie down, O sluggard? The sluggard is that term used for a lazy man. And they ignore the future need. Instead, they want to take part in immediate pleasure. And actually, the, the uh, word there is to repent. When will you arise from your sleep? You're sleeping too long to get any work done. And that's where verse 10 says, a little sleep in a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, it's a picture of laziness. And it says, the consequences are, in verse 11, your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. You know, so if you're looking at the ant, here's the example that's given. It's, the ant shows initiative. It's not relying on another to direct their work. Shows foresight. Planning for the future needs by preparing in advance and shows a willingness to work hard, gathering from the harvest. In contrast to the sluggard who sleeps when they should be working, their only concern is their present ease. And then poverty comes step by step like a vagabond, like an armed man with irresistible violence. It's self-inflicted poverty. Proverbs 13.4 says, The soul of a sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. Proverbs 14.23, In all labor there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. So, pitfall two is to avoid poverty that's brought on by laziness. So first you have pitfall one, to avoid bondage by not guaranteeing another's debt. This one is to avoid poverty that's brought on by laziness. Well, the third pitfall that's identified by the father is strife. And particularly strife coming from a factious agitator, either their influence on you or just being attached to them, the danger is your demise. So, going to preclude strife by avoiding the actions or the influence of a factious man. Look at verse 12. It says, a worthless person, a wicked man, that's, that's the description of this uh, factious or divisive person, also known as an insurrectionist, same term, a troublemaker. And what marks his behavior? What are his characteristics? You see that in verse 12? It's one who walks with a perverse mouth. It's a guy that lies. He, he works in deception. He misuses the power that he has. 
And then it says, who winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, and points with his fingers. All of those are kind of hidden gestures that communicate with his fellow conspirators. So he's, um, he's trying to create dissension and strife. He's doing that with fellow co-conspirators, and he's communicating with them in this way. And then verse 14 says, who with perversity in his heart continually devises evil. You know, it's always the heart, isn't it? It's always the heart where these uh, dark, evil things are taking place. You know, it's, it's always been that way. Listen to Genesis um, chapter 6, verse 5. This is during the days of Noah, right? Then the Lord saw that wickedness of man was great on earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, that's where all these, this stuff happens, is in that, that core of a person, that center, their heart, and all they're thinking about is evil. That's what this factious agitator is all about. And you know what he's doing is serious. I mean, it's, it's, it's sinful and it's serious sin, sinfulness. You know, Galatians 5.19 lists all the deeds of the flesh, and in, those, in that list is immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealously, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions. I mean, those are the things that this factious man brings up, dissensions, factions, strife. Paul says, um, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I forewarn you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know, in Titus 3.10, it says this. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. That's in the context of the church. When you have this kind of a man in the church that's creating such division, this is an accelerated church discipline process. You see that? You warn him once, you warn him twice, and you put him out. Why? Because he's dangerous to the rest of the church. And certainly, what the father's seeking to do here with the son is identify this pitfall because the factious man speaks perversely and organizes divisive activities. And then spreading strife leads to ruin. It says in verse 15, therefore his calamity will come suddenly. In other words, all this division that he's caused will recoil on top of him. Proverbs 24, 21 says, my son, fear the Lord and the king. Do not associate with those who are given to change for their calamity will rise suddenly and who knows the ruin that comes from both of them? So there's that picture that this calamity that comes on this um, factious person is ruinous. It ruins their lives. And it ruins those that attach themselves to a factious man. And there will be no healing, it says at the end of verse 15. And that's when the context of this verse that was our our theme verse for today, in verse 16, it says there are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven, which are an abomination to him, that are detestable, and that the one possessing these traits that we'll identify are removed from the Lord's presence. It says each one of these seven items affect the ruin of the victims, but they also boomerang to ruin the troublemaker. They're a summary of the inner heart. Let's look at this list of seven things. So there's haughty eyes in verse 17. Haughty eyes is an expression of arrogance, self-exaltation. Pride, that's 
with the one that has haughty eyes. That, and then a lying tongue, that's aggressive deceit. A lying tongue seeking to harm others. And hands that shed innocent blood. We're using the whole body here, right? Haughty eyes, lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. These are murderers who are motivated by greed. And obviously the heart's going to be part of it. Verse 18, a heart that devises wicked plans, schemes, schemes that um, create physical or spiritual activity that are wicked. And then feet. So you have eyes, tongue, hands, heart, now feet. Feet that run rapidly to evil. There's a picture that the evil schemes that this man's creating, for him they, they create great zeal and energy as he seeks to accomplish his evil compulsions. Then verse 19 says, A false witness who utters lies. This is one who threatens the life or property of someone else by bringing false witness about them. And then it says, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Strife is what the father is looking to preclude. Strife is what the factious man wants to spread among brothers, among relatives, among family members. He unleashes conflict. So, the third pitfall to avoid then is this strife. Father's seeking to preclude strife that's caused by the actions or associations with a factious man. So, pitfall one, bondage to be escaped. Pitfall two, poverty to be prevented. Pitfall three, strike, strife to be precluded. Well, let's look at the remaining verses now in this chapter. From verse 20 to verse 35, I'll read those now. My son, observe the commandment of your father, and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. And you, when you awake, they will talk to you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is light. And reproofs for discipline are the way of life. To keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not, despire, do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. For on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread. And an adulteress hunts for the precious life. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is hungry. But when he is found, he must repay sevenfold. He must give all the substance of his house. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He would destroy himself. He who would destroy himself does it. Wounds and disgrace he will find, and his reproach will not be blotted out. For jealousy enrages a man, and he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not accept any ransom, nor will he be satisfied, though you may give many gifts. So going back to verse 20, we have the attributes of this instruction that's being given. It's like um, the writer of Proverbs here takes just a moment of interlude to reinforce the attributes of the instruction that's being given. You know, there's similar attributes of this instruction as to the Mosaic law. You'll see that uh, as, we, as we look at these attributes of the parental teaching, the parental counsel 
You know, in Deuteronomy 6, 8, it's talking about the Mosaic law, and it says, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. Talking about binding them. Deuteronomy eleven nineteen says, you shall teach them to your sons, talking of them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie up and when you rise down. So again, they're talking about the Mosaic law to be taught, very similar to the parental council. And then finally, in Psalm 119, 105, it says, your word, O Lord, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Again, you're going to see these metaphors used to um, describe the parental council. But what, again, is the parental council based on? Where, where does the father and the mother get the basis for their teaching to the son? Where does that come from? Yeah, absolutely. It comes from God's word. Makes sense that there would be these similar characteristics. So when you see verse 20, he says, my son, observe the commandment of your father. Well, where did that commandment of your father come from? Came from the commandments of the Lord. So, but he's telling his son, observe the commandment of your father. Do not forsake the teachings of your mother. This parental instruction. Bind them, verse 21, bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. Memorize them until permanently impressed. When you walk about, they will guide you. They're going to give you constant guidance through danger. Remember, we're, we're talking about a son that's um, probably in his late teens. Let me ask you something about this son. If he's not saved through placing his faith in God, is he going to have much interest in this? Is he going to be able to do this? No. So you see, the foundation for all of this is being able to understand the Word of God, to be able to apply the Word of God, and to have a desire to listen to the Word of God. And so um, there's that foundation that's being built on here by the Father because he's already shared the gospel with his son here. And his son has a willingness to hear his father because they share a common faith. So now at the end of verse 22b, goes on to say, when you sleep, they will watch over you. There's protection that comes when you're sleeping, when you should be sleeping. And when you're awake, they will talk to you, reminding of teachings that you had, and that starts your day off right, right? It says, verse 23, for the commandment is a lamp. It's that ability to provide illumination in the ways it wants to live. It says, it's a lamp, and the teaching is a light, that the teaching between right and wrong, and reproofs for discipline are the way of life for the abundant life. And specifically in this teaching, they provide illumination, they provide light to protect the son from dangers he cannot see, right? And we're going to get to the last one now. The final one is self-destruction averted. Now this is kind of a review of where we were last week, right? Because the pitfall here is the seductive beauty of an adulteress that we went into pretty much detail last week, right? Well, um, we're going we're gonna to kind of revisit that subject because what the Father's saying is you avert self-destruction by rejecting the solicitation of the adulteress. You know, that what we see from her, the smooth tongue that's flattery and seduction. She has an outward beauty and it's enhanced by eyelashes or makeup. She makes bold advances. She's hunting as one to capture you. See, verse 24 says, to keep you from the evil woman. And if you want a little more, you know, uh, identification of who this evil woman is, drop down to verse 29. So is the one who goes to his neighbor's wife. 
So when we're talking about the adulteress, we're, we're talking about the neighbor's wife here. Okay? So it says, to keep you from the evil one, the one who's corrupt in character, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress, her flattering speech. And she's the unfaithful wife of your neighbor. Do not despise her beauty in your, or do not desire, excuse me, do not desire her beauty in your heart. So there's this um, outward beauty that she has. It's an external appearance, and it can cause you to do what? Desire in your heart. What, what is that sin? Sin of coveting, right? It's coveting. Of course, there's a commandment about that. You shall not covet your neighbor's house nor covet your neighbor's wife. Says at the end of verse 25, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. So that's this outer beauty that's enhanced through either eyelashes or eye makeup. She arouses his lust. Verse 26, it says, For account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread, and adulteress hunts for precious life. Now, in verse 26, there's not a complete agreement over what this comparison and contrast is. Some believe that the harlot and the adulteress are one and the same person. Uh, others believe that the harlot is a prostitute and the adulteress is different from that, which I think may fit the context a little better because it says, in the account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread. Um, that is, the cost of a harlot is about equal to a loaf of bread is what the thought is there. But the adulteress hunts for the precious life. The contrast there is the adulteress really isn't interested in money. That's not her primary goal. She's hunting to bring down the life of her prey, to capture. So it's more of that kind of a contrast. It says adultery's cost is much more it results in broken vows in a ruined home. And the father's going to go on and say, basically, in a very short synopsis, he's saying, look, don't even go there because it's like playing with fire. Don't play with fire. You get how he says this? He says in verse 27, can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Well, you got a picture of a guy that's you know, got an armload of maybe hot coals or something, what's going to happen to his clothes? He's going to get burned. And that's the picture Father's trying to create for the Son. Don't even think about this, because if you do, you're going to get burned. Verse 28, or can a man walk on hot coals? Now, there are men in India that appear that they can do this. I don't think any one of us want to try that. And that's really the admonition here. You don't want to try that because if you walk on hot, hot coals, your feet will be scorched. Again, the answer to that question is no. And the vision here is these hot coals are charcoal that's used to melt copper. I mean, they're glowing hot. They're going to burn your feet. And adultery is like playing with fire. You're going to get burned. Verse 29 says, so is the one who goes to his neighbor's wife. And when it says go in, that doesn't mean to go next door and have a cup of coffee. We're talking about to engage in a physical act of adultery. It says, whoever touches her will not go unpunished. In other words, punishment is inevitable in this case. You know, the real delusion here is the one who commits adultery thinks they're going to get away with it. And the reality is they never get away with it. Like we saw last week, who always sees what's going on? Yeah, we saw that last week, that the Lord is always seeing what goes on. There's never any getting away with that, that sin. And the form of punishment in verse 30 says, men do not despise a thief if he steals, to satisfy him when he's hunger. So, you know, there is a time when some things are overlooked, when 
somebody steals because they're desperate. Their only way to stay alive is to steal because of their hunger. It says when he's found, he's still going to have to pay sevenfold. Even though there is the understanding that that could happen where somebody has to become a thief in order to live, they've still got to pay sevenfold. But verse 32 says, in contrast, the one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He's literally, the word is brainless. Because he would destroy himself when he does that. Father's trying to help him understand this is a seductress who's hunting him, who's seeking to capture him. And he's trying at all means to describe what it's like to get into that situation. It's like getting burned really, really bad. And it's like destroying yourself. So protect your heart from coveting your neighbor's wife's advances. And then it's going to go on and say the anger of the husband of the adulteress will cause him to seek vengeance. Verse 31. Or excuse me. Um, verse 33. It says wounds and disgrace he will find. That's the physical and social ruin. And his reproach will not be blotted out. So there's going to be a disgrace. There's punished by losing worth and influence. But verse 34 goes on to say, For jealousy enrages a man. This is the husband of the adulteress. For jealousy enrages a man to be hot, to be angry. And he will not spare in the day of vengeance. Not spare. He's not, there's no compassion in one who's been wronged in this way. He's going to bring about the legal authority because this is breaking the law in, in, uh, in Israel at this time. He's not going to accept ransom, it says in verse 35. There'll be no financial consideration that can satisfy him. He wants vengeance. It says, nor will he be satisfied though you give him many gifts. He wants justice. He wants his full pound of flesh. He wants to see that person that committed adultery with his wife destroyed. He wants to see him ruined. So pitfall number four to avoid is self-destruction from committing adultery with your neighbor's wife. So we've had pitfall one, bondage escape. Don't become surety or a guarantor for your neighbor. Pitfall two is poverty prevented. Don't be lazy. Don't try to avoid work. Pitfall three is strife precluded. Don't be influenced or attach yourselves to a factious man. And then finally, self-destruction averted. Avoid self-destruction by committing adultery with your neighbor's wife. I think that's pretty good instruction that a father might identify some of these hidden dangers for his son. Yeah, let's look at the application. When I looked at the application, what I wanted to do was, you've, you've seen the pitfalls that have been uh, identified, right? But what, what should be the practice then that's promoted? What should be the practice that takes the place of? Because we always say, you know, really changing behavior is you stop the bad behavior, right? But you have to start the righteous behavior. So what would that be, the contrast here? So, if one's not going to become surety for his neighbor, he can be generous and kind within the limits of his own resources. You know, 1 Timothy 6 gives instruction to those who are rich. Now those are people that have the ability, that have possessions, that have assets, that can be generous, that can be kind, but do it within your own limits. Do you get this? Listen to 1 Timothy 6, 17. 
Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. It says, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So there's ways of being generous and ready to share that don't require you to guarantee the debt of someone that you shouldn't do that. But you should be generous, ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasures of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So better than taking on an obligation that's unwise is using your resources to give to somebody that's in need or to help them, to be generous. Within the limits of what you have, right? Don't exceed what you have. That wouldn't be wise. When we look at being diligent in your work and the preparation of future provision. So instead of being lazy, the way to prevent poverty is to be diligent in work in preparation of future provisions. Just simply do what you were uh, exhorted to do in verse 6 of chapter 6. Proverbs 16.3 is going to go on to say, commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. So there's an assumption there that you're going to have plans, plans that you hold on to lightly, but plans that will... Um, allow you to work intelligently or wisely so that you're accomplishing work to prepare for the future, but that you're being um, diligent. You know, Paul had to address that in the church at Thessalonica where they uh, were looking so forward to the imminent return of the Lord that they had looked at one another and said, why go to work? Lord's coming, we're just fellowship. Sounds good, right? Well, it was causing problems. And Paul went to correct those problems in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. He said, for we hear that some of you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all. And when you do that, what seeps in? Well, you're acting like busybodies. Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion, and eat their own bread. You know, and Paul was always an example of that. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, For you call, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. There's even a sense that we earn credibility to be able to share the gospel with others by being diligent in the way that we work. So in contrast to being lazy, be diligent in our work. And instead of being a part of strife, be a part of unity. It says maintain love of one another by preserving unity with humility. So that's the contrast. The factious man wants to create division, wants to take down the people that he's associated with. It says his own brothers. He's, he's stirring up conflict. In contrast to that, we want to be those that create unity, that are the peacemakers. You know, in Philippians 2, Paul's solving problems within the church, Right? And he encourages uh, two of the women there, Yodia and Sinesi, uh, to live in harmony. Obviously, they weren't at that point in time. He's saying, live in harmony in the Lord. He's already said in Philippians 2, he says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, that is the absolute opposite of what the one producing strife is doing, right? This is 
uh, all of these things that bring about unity. Because he says in verse 3 of Philippians 2, he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. You know, really that is the basis for, for unity. The basis for unity is humility. And regarding others is more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. You know, again, that focus on, on creating unity by loving those that the Lord's put you with you and serving them. And then Paul's going to exhort them to follow an example. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then finally, and again, we touched on this last week, but it's, it's just, it's so incredibly important, it's, it's worth emphasizing. It's build a strong marriage by intentionally loving your wife. I mean, the best defense against adultery is by having no need to look at anyone else but your wife. No need to covet your neighbor's wife because you're consumed with the wife of your youth and building the greatest, strongest marriage that you can have. You're not looking anywhere else. Your, your focus is on your own wife. You know, again, Proverbs 5.18, just a great verse. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. I mean, this isn't like some hard thing to do. This is something that you can gain great joy from doing. Um, it's something that as you uh, live with the companion that the Lord has given you, um, it creates great joy in your heart. You know, we looked at 1 Peter 3.7. It says, you husbands... In the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. How can you understand your wife? You have to spend time with her, talk to her. You have to live with her in a way that you understand her desires, her needs. It says, if someone weaker since she's a woman, show her honor. Again, you know, that picture of a husband who seeks to honor his wife, as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. You know, honor, respect, integrity. These are all things that should be shared in the marriage relationship. You know, things that should come to mind if you're um, in a situation where you feel that's escaping you, you need to regroup. You need to regroup and make sure that you're loving your wife in a way that's showing her honor. You know, again, Ephesians 5.25 is the verse that says, Husbands, love your wife just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Um, you know, that love that a husband's supposed to have for their wives is sacrificial. You know, it's to put her needs in front of your own on a regular basis, on a daily basis. So, again, you know, I, I bring that up to emphasize that is, you know, that really is, for those that are married, that brings about the ability to um, have a strong Christian witness. For those that, uh, that aren't married, they understand what the goal is in, uh, in marriage and yet know that singleness brings about uh, its its own opportunity, right? Singleness says that um, instead of having um, someone that you have, have as a primary point of emphasis, who's the primary point of emphasis in the single person's life? The Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, that's to be where your, um, 
you know, focus is, is to please the Lord Jesus Christ in, in all of your endeavors. Um, so, again, Proverbs, very practical in the way that it approaches us to give us the guidance that we have. Um, very helpful in the way that it uh, identifies the hidden dangers that are hard to see. In this case, uh, the father is trying to help the son walk in a way that doesn't result in ruin or destruction. So let's pray. Father, we are so thankful, Lord. We're thankful that you have reconciled us to yourself, that those that have come this morning to worship you, that have come this morning to study your word, have done so because you have reconciled them to yourself through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray if there's one in this room who has come and they don't know you as their Lord and Savior, they've come because they desire they're seeking to understand the truth of the word of God, but they've not yet made a commitment to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I pray today that would be the desire of their heart, that you might, again, um, Lord, convict them of their sin and their need for a Savior, and that, Lord, as a result, they might repent and believe in our Lord Jesus Christ. And following the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, is accomplishing your will that is given to us through your word. And Lord, we thank you for the book of Proverbs, such a practical guide to applying wisdom into our own lives. That Lord, we might take the opportunity to exhort those younger that may be naive, that may be lacking in understanding, the truths that you've given us, or, Lord, we pray we would take these same truths to heart ourselves, and that, Father, we wouldn't be ones who carelessly give up the goods that you've put under us as stewards by guaranteeing the debt of another, that, Lord, we um, act as wise stewards of all the provisions you've given us, that we're generous within the limits of what we have, that we don't self-destruct by being proudful or, Lord, uh, looking to exalt ourselves by making unwise decisions, that, Lord, we, uh, we do things to bring you glory and not ourselves in the realm of giving and being generous with our provisions. And, Father, I pray that uh, we would all desire to be those who work in a way that accomplish enough to provide for our own means, but not just our own means, Father. We, we pray you help us to uh, provide for others around us that are in need, and that, Lord, even uh, provide an inheritance for uh, our children that come behind us, that all of those things you've said in Scripture is to be a purpose for which we might work and to accomplish those goals, but yet we work in such a way, Lord, that we're diligent, we have a testimony, we have a witness to those we work with and those we work for, that we do our work as like one that is working unto the Lord. And Father, I pray that we are able to discern those that would want to bring strife those that are being divisive, those that are being factious. And that, Lord, we would have nothing to do with those people. And if they're doing such to create strife in, in our own church, our own community, our own family, that, Father, we would expose them as those that are only motivated by evil desires. They'd be exposed by being those who are opposed to the Word of God those that have no interest in unity, no interest in putting their own needs ahead of themselves, 
Father, we, help, we pray that you help us to be peacemakers. Those that are able to bring comfort into the lives of others. Those who are able to respond to those that are suffering. Lord, that we might be a strong church here that um, is united in our efforts. And all to your glory, Lord. All to be pleasing in your sight. And Father, I pray for those that are married, that Lord, you would help them understand your desire for marriage and your uh, things that you have identified as most important, that uh, both husband and wife treat one another with honor and respect serve one another in love, have a union that, Lord, is unbreakable, that's permanent. And Father, I pray for those that are single, Lord, that you help them to have that desire that comes with a uh, soul focus and commitment to you, Lord, in their lives each day to please you, to bring about uh, those things in their, their lives that result in your honor, your glory. And Lord, I pray for all of us that we, uh, as we continue through this book, we take these truths to heart and apply them to our lives. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.